Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Game Audio Hour, a fortnightly podcast where we discuss all things game audio. From creative ideas to the latest techniques, project experiences to audio secrets, here is where you'll find in-depth coverage and opinions related to game audio. I'm Vincent Diamante, hanging out in a very, very hot room right now. I'm in my 10-foot by 9-foot by 8-foot box with just a little bit of ventilation out into the outside world where it is only slightly cooler because SoCal is starting to get pretty warm. Uh, But I don't know about other parts of Southern California. Um, Mike, how are you feeling up there? I'm probably feeling the same, literally the same weather that you are, given that we're fairly close to one another. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little toasty. I've got a big ceiling fan going, and every day I pray that it continues to work because it was this particular model was discontinued in the 90s, and who knows what parts are available for servicing should it fail. Oh, excellent. Here, uh, I really do hope that that ceiling fan and all that stuff keeps on working strong Actually, how are you doing there, Alex? Like, are you having to deal with any heat right now? Any cooling methods? I'm well, thank you. Uh, I am sitting here about one meter, which is, I don't know, four, four, 46 stone and nine score in, in, uh, in freedom units <laughs> uh, from a fan. So if my voice sounds like I'm uh, coming through a bit crusher, that could be because uh, RX was not able to uh, do such a great job at cleaning up this very high noise floor that I have uh, today. Uh, But the fan is cool. Uh, Sweden is nice, actually. It's about uh, 20, which is, I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's comfortable. So probably a lot cooler than it is for you both at the moment. Uh, But yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. 20 sounds awesome. I would really, really love to do that. I'm actually looking forward to a little bit of a reprieve from Southern California heat because next week I'm going to make my way to Europe. Um, not not necessarily your neck of the woods, Alex, but I'm hoping that Switzerland treats me nicely when I go on my vacation next week. Unfortunately, Southern and Western Europe is in a little bit of a heat wave right now. So uh, uh, next week it's supposed to warm up here in Stockholm. So it's going to get up to like 27, 28, which is Slightly warm, I guess you would say, but then, uh, yeah, I have a colleague at the moment who's in Paris, and she said it is boiling hot there at the moment. So, yeah, let's hope it's not too bad for you when you come. Boiling hot? Please don't tell me that, darn it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we oh should no. uh, we should uh, we should elegantly segue away from uh, our <laughs> topics of weather because we are the game audio hour. Uh, so well, what are you talking about? Like weather is such an important part, at least here in California, where it seems like whenever there are storms rolling in, sound designers will hit their Twitter and say, time to break out the portable recorders, time to break out the <laughs> right. microphone. And yeah. Let's see if I can actually record a lightning strike or some such. <laughs> um, yesterday was really amazing. It was just hours and hours of thunderstorms rolling into town starting from around, I want to say 2 or 3 a.m. and going for a solid 12 hours. Uh, Wow. Did you experience that, Mike? Uh, Yesterday, I could see the lightning dramatically in the distance and occasionally hear thunder, but we never got any rain in my neck of the woods. 
Mm, okay. Nature is the greatest sound designer, obviously. And uh, the two sounds which always, always kind of move me uh, from nature, number one is the sound of the sea lapping up on a shore. Not like, not when it's very rough chop, but when it's quite um, uh, gentle sea kind of uh, uh, lapping up onto a shore and then receding, that kind of that sound, oh boy, the uh, the noise cancellation from RX is going to love that, isn't it? <laughs> that sound um, is so nice on the ears. And the other sound, of course, is the sound of thunder. And let's face it, you know, that's, that is proper bass. <laughs> it's the best. It's, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, talking with some other sound designers about new rigs for recording recently, uh, just because uh, there's all this new stuff on the horizon, or not even on the horizon, it's here now. There's just some limitations on what you can get and where you can find it. Uh, I'm speaking of 32-bit recording uh-huh. for field recording units. Wow. And um, really the exciting thing about it is because the recording is in 32-bit space that you don't really need to even deal with an analog preamp that you have to fiddle with in order to get the gain just right for whatever material you're recording. You know, 32 bits provides enough dynamic range that you can cover really quiet stuff, exceptionally loud stuff, and everything in the middle without having to twiddle some knobs or mess with uh, a gain in a menu. You just sort of plug in your microphone and go. Wow. Uh, And that's kind of cool. Although I've also heard some people say it's not, you know, 100% the most awesome thing in the world because there are still some issues with some recorders. Uh, they specifically mentioned the Zoom recorders that are out right now that uh, you might hear a little bit of sound when you switch between recording something quiet and recording something extremely loud that you can hear a little bit of noise when the analog to digital converter actually hears that because there is actually a little bit of a switch in going between the low stuff and the high stuff. Mm. So, okay, so it's not perfect, but still there's a lot of promise out there that field recording is going to be so, so much easier than it was in the past. And you look at these new Zoom recorders, there's barely any physical interface on it, barely any menu on it. It really is expected that you just plug in a microphone and you just go. Wow. So that's kind of cool. I'm really excited to make a switch eventually because I do have my my typical portable uh, sound recording gear. And uh, it always feels like a little bit of... Um, a hassle, a little bit of anxiety that I've set things up just right for the things that I want to record, but then something unexpected comes and I'm actually not quite equipped to handle that. I have to go into menus, I have to fiddle. So I- I'm kind of interested and excited to make that switch eventually. Ha- have you guys looked at any of this, Alex? Uh, I have not. I actually don't do much recording myself. Um, I tend for sound effects stuff. I tend to use libraries uh, or just like quick recordings for stuff that I don't have. Um, and the rest, of course, is is uh, synthesizers for me. But that sounds really cool. Like I, I, I imagine that um, that kind of technology obviously is very applicable to people who work in film uh, as well and on on sets and recording dialogue. Um, 
for shooting field. Do, do they? I actually don't know. Do they? Do they use the same kind of equipment as you know foley artists and field sound effect recordists used? Yeah, it's really similar. Um, you see a lot of the same names, a lot of the same uh, models. Uh, those sound devices and task cams and zooms and whatnot. Mm. Um, there's a lot of overlap these days, and especially between the sort of lower level of film stuff where you'll typically see a lot of these zoom and task cam recorders. Uh, those are the exact same things that a lot of pro sound designers are using, you know, or or people that are in field recording or or Foley. A lot of the same stuff there. That's fantastic because you can imagine that being like a dialogue recorder. What's the name of somebody who who does the recording of a dialogue on a movie set? Uh, oh, the 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 guys handling the booms. Yeah, well, there's there's a, there's like a name for all of these these roles, isn't there? Do you know, Mike? I don't, but I know the kind of term that you're thinking of, like gaffer yeah. and and grip and yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, the anyway, that person that must be a fantastic um, piece of you know promising new technology for that role because. That's a role that I imagine would be very, very difficult to accurately and quickly set levels for because sometimes you just don't know whether your actors are going to be whispering or whether they're going to be shouting. <laughs> and you want to be ready mm -hmm. for all of those, you know, if they decide to do a take where they're suddenly shouting or they decide to do a take where they're whispering, I imagine that it's quite an art form to find the right levels for those situations. Um, but yeah, technology like that is going to remove that challenge, which will make things much easier. Yeah. I mentioned, I think in the last episode, that I went to film school. And even though I'm an audio person, I actually had a lot more fun as the DP and being behind the camera. Audio stuff, it was really annoying. Even something as, quote, simple, unquote, as holding a boom mic in front of your actors, it was always this uh, anxiety that I'm not looking the right way at the right time because I have mm. to ma maintain my distance, be out of frame, and then also watch my levels and make sure that everything is just right. Uh, try to point it in a way that just gets me just the right coverage if I'm handling two or three people. It's really annoying. <laughs> really, really annoying. I much preferred having to just be behind the camera. <laughs> yeah, no no question about it. When you see, you know, making of kinds of videos and you see those people with the with those really long boom mics with like the fluffy shotgun on the end of them, uh, I, I assume that's what, no, they're not. Yeah, yeah, shotgun mics. Yeah, yeah, you, you see them in, in those making of documentaries anyway. And you, I always think to myself, well, that has to be a difficult job because you don't want to get that big fluffy thing into the camera shot. How do they even know where the, the, the extent of the camera shot is? And then, of course, yeah, if the whole issue of levels is just mind-boggling. How do you do it? So, yeah, mm -hmm. this this technology could be uh, uh, a really beneficial addition to uh, to people doing that role. That's great. Yeah. So uh, this is all relatively new stuff, all these 32-bit recorders. And the cheapest 32-bit recorders that are out now are pretty affordable. Like Zoom has a new F2 portable field recorder. That you could, uh, I think this is more for dialogue stuff, but it's on the affordable end at around 150 bucks. You've got the Zoom F3, uh, which is about twice the price, 300, 350 bucks. Uh, but that's all around what we expect. If you're looking at a nice quality field recorder, high quality preamps, a lot of options for input and output. You know, if you're a sound designer looking at getting some piece of kit together, 
uh, it's really a lot easier now to get something super high quality. Uh, I remember back 10, 15 years ago where there was the good stuff, you know, things like your nice sound devices recorders, and then the utter crap because analog preamps that you put down in those $100, $200 devices were just not worth talking about and the the quality of the interface in terms of actually using the interface. Uh, but now it seems like it's so much easier to get something high quality, really usable. So that's fantastic. One hundred and fifty dollars. That's that's uh, that's outrageously good value. I, I was thinking when you were talking about thirty-two bit recording, new technology. I was thinking, you know, it must be like what a grand or more for for, for sort of super premium device like that on the cutting edge of technology. But one hundred and fifty dollars is amazing. It's it's cool stuff. Yeah, I think in general, not only sound recordists, but in general, I think we're. Uh, I think the three of us are going to sound like three grumpy old men, or in this case, not so grumpy old men by saying this, but the we really live in a, a time when um, so much of this excellent quality music technology is just so readily available. Uh, and, you know, prices for very, very good quality uh, equipment is is just very affordable generally. Um, I mean, not, not to say that $150 is chump change, but, you know, it's... Uh, um, far more affordable than you would think for sort of bleeding edge technology like that. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of uh, bleeding edge technology, I'm really eager to get into this topic. <laughs> so over, uh, let's see, it was about a week ago or maybe two weeks ago, um, uh, a big announcement was made in the world of uh, plugin technology. And that is a new plugin format called Clap. Um, this is developed uh co-developed between, it's an open source project. So there's a bunch of, um, uh, a whole bunch of developers around the world who've been working on this uh, for several years now. And the repository, the open source repository uh, has been available since April of last year. Uh, and it is um, the two sort of, uh, I guess, administrative uh, companies that have, are spearheading the whole project. Uh, one of course is my own beloved Yuhi, my own. I don't. I'm not. I'm not affiliated with Yuhi, but I love everything that they <laughs> they, they they do. Uh, and Bitwig, the the poster boy of electronic, progressive, DAW, funky Berlin, uh, all of that grey orange, fantastic DAW stuff. <laughs> um, so, just a quick rundown for people who have not uh, been keeping up to date. It's basically a new plugin format. So, just like you'd have AU VST. Uh, AAX, who are respectively owned by um, Apple, Steinberg, and Avid, uh, Clap uh, has entered the scene, uh, trying to be a basically a and it's an open source format which is not tethered in any way to the corporate or commercial interests of a company. So the key point there really is that you know all of the plugin developers they make. AU versions and they make VST versions of their plugins, but should you know should Apple decide that it's going to now release AU version two, and everybody has to get on board with it, and everybody has to suddenly pay royalties, or everybody has to um, be beholden to its own licensing agreements, then plugin developers basically have no choice. And I think the culprit of this one, of course, is Steinberg's VST. Because with their transition from VST2 to VST3, um, there were a lot of uh, troubles that a lot of developers uh, went through and have been going through 
because it's VSD is owned by this big corporation. Um, so Claps seeks to address all of that and basically seeks to give developers an open source option where they they can basically do what they wish and they don't have to worry about a big corporation holding the keys to their product, essentially. Mm-hmm. Just uh, quickly to run down some of the more notable features that benefit uh, us music producers and, and sound designers, of course. Um, the main ones uh, are per note automation and modulation. So that is kind of a, you know, a bit boring for somebody like me who usually works in Renoise where if you're working in samples, you've always got per note automation and modulation. But uh, basically, instead of um, a single set of modulation parameters affecting all of the, the polyphony that's coming out of a single software synthesizer, this will allow you, for example, to say, uh, I mean, I guess a really basic example is, you know, you want this note to pitch bend up and you want that note to pitch bend down. I guess it's a real example. And, and right now, the only way to do that would be uh, if you're using an MPE-capable DAW and an MPE-capable uh, synth, you could do it, or you just have to set up multiple instances of the same plugin, some going up and some going down, basically. If I could um, jump in for a second, couldn't this also be affected mm-hmm. by different MIDI channels and just assigning automation to the different channels? Mm. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, if you have a multi-temporal synth, uh, I don't know, multi-temporal is not the is not the default these days, especially with more, I guess, uh, you know, especially sound design oriented synths. Yeah, I think I think with that mm. with per note automation, there are various ways to achieve it. But all of them require second, third, fourth, fifth steps, you know. Uh, whereas in this case, if it's just baked into the functionality of the plugin format and baked into the functionality of the DAW as well, then it's all right there for you immediately to access. Um, other features, non-destructive parameter modulation. So uh, parameters will snap back to their original value, uh, which... Mm which is useful if you consider that you've you know you've got the perfect patch and now you're going to modulate certain parts of it uh unless you are setting them back to their original value in the DAW in your modulation lanes uh they will be always set to where you leave them basically whereas in this case you have the option to temporarily offset a parameter and then have it snap back when you stop modulating it uh, the other Im- notable improvements are the performance. Um, there's more efficient multi-thread management between the plugin and the host, um, which is good uh, because right now uh, you can watch uh, some plugins max out the CPU by sitting on a single thread on a single core, whereas the CLAP format um, uh, allows you to access multiple cores of the CPU much more efficiently. Uh, and finally, uh, there may be more more than these actually, but one of the other notable ones is uh, Clap Format will allow you to assign metadata to plugins, which is nice because it means you'll uh, DAW makers will have the option to uh, provide more efficient and more useful plugin sorting and library management tools. So just like you can go to your sound library and type in, you know, uh, Thunder. Uh, in this case, you could perhaps go to your plugin library and type in, you know, um, polysynth or something like that, and then come up with all your plugins that are tagged with that. Yeah. So before we go any further, let's get the elephant out of the room. 
uh, and that is uh, this name, Clap. Clap. Yes. So there's. Uh, I've been following uh, a very long thread that's growing on the KVR Audio Forum, um, and they're not only discussing the Clap format, but obviously the 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 thing that most people just sort of come in saying is like, "Yeah, sounds great. This is cool," but like that name, guys. Like, really. <laughs> And uh, I wanted to ask you both first, um, CLAP is a slang term referring to a certain sexually transmitted disease, I believe, Um, as well as... Yes. I think that uh, if you you CLAP somebody, I think it means you slap them. Is that right? That I haven't heard as often. Hmm. Maybe that's more European. I don't know. Might be more British English. But um, yeah, the first... When I saw it as well, it's like, CLAP, oh, come on, no. Like really, it stands for clever audio plugin, I think. Yeah, and that's what really gets me. Like the name itself isn't even that great. Okay, it's a crappy acronym, but maybe if the name itself was actually kind of cool, but it even has clever in the name that immediately means that it's not a clever name. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, clever like- audio plugin. Oh. My my improv improvised theory on the adaptation of ugly sounding names is time will erase negative connotations. So you think of the lesson of the Nintendo Wii. Um, things that sound dumb eventually don't sound dumb as long as the underlying product is good. However, the insurmountable obstacle is lack of euphemy, uh, which I think Clap does not suffer. But that's why I think Samsung's um, Alexa mm. slash Siri competitor Bixby was doomed because no one wants to pronounce that word. Clap is easy to say, and I think if it takes off, we'll we'll kind of disassociate with the prior association. I think the real question is, will it take off? Yeah, that's right. The um, yeah. um, Urs Heckman, who is the CEO of Yuhi and uh, uh, one half of the, the the you know the the main administrative group that's spearheading this initiative, um, he basically said what you just did, Mike. You know. Clap. The word clap has been on pretty much every hardware drum machine ever, <laughs> and nobody snickers about that. You know, clap means to celebrate. Uh, the other thing is that there possibly could be a generational thing with associating clap with a STD. That could be something that's limited to a certain generation. So perhaps potentially younger people, they won't think, I, th- I think it's gonorrhea, I think, isn't it? That they won't associate yeah. clap with gonorrhea. And yeah, basically, Nintendo Wii, I mean, let's face it, Twitter, (laughs) there are so many examples of just like really, really awful names that just through sheer ubiquity uh, or the the passing of time, um, just really just shift and become quite commonplace. Um, Who knows? Who knows? I think we all agree that Clap is kind of a dorky name. if you compare it to its competitor, if an open source product could have an impre- a competitor, in this case, its competitor is LV2, um, which is mm-hmm. another open source um, uh, plugin form uh, format, which at this stage is is rather poorly supported. I think Reaper is one of the main ones that supports LV2 and Traction. I think. Yeah, I mean all those Linux DAWs. So yeah, Traction. You know, things like Harrison Mixbus and, and Ardor, yeah. which Harrison is based off of. I mean, uh, LV2, I mean, the L 
well, it's not Linux. It's a, it's actually like uh, what is it? Ladspa. But but again, that's a that's Linux audio developer, the simple plugin API. Mm. So this would be the level two of that. So yeah, the the Linux guys have been caring about this for a little bit, uh, but it really uh, doesn't fall under the larger uh, commercial music industry purview. Right. So then moving on from the name, because <laughs> uh, it's here to stay, it's called Clap, so let's let's get over that. Um, uh, Yuhi and Bitwig have been chasing down um, over the, because this has been in discussion for several years now, and they've been chasing down uh, collaborators in the, the plugin development space. And actually, there's a really good um, write-up on the Bitwig website that you can go to to have a look. But just scanning over the list of um, companies who have expressed their interest in porting their products to Clap, uh, there's a, it's a comprehensive list. I mean, we're talking Avid, which is really amazing. Like, uh, if Avid decided to take on um, this format, that would be very, very interesting. Uh, Arturia, Cable Guys, uh, Kokos of Reaper fame, Cytomic, DMG Audio, uh, Epic Games. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Then moving down to other well-known companies here, we have FabFilter, Image Line of FL Studio fame. Uh, let's see, Plogue, PreSonus of Studio One fame, which is interesting. Um, Valhalla, VCV of VCV Rack, uh, Togu, Audio Line, uh, Exver Records. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's that's a, I mean, it's a small list in the in the 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 big picture of how many plugin makers there are out there. But I think the presence of Avid, uh, Image Line, uh, and PreSonus is very interesting. You know, those uh, Avid is the interesting one there because they have their AAX format. Um, uh, Presonus uh, and ImageLine, you you could probably expect that that's likely because they don't have their own native plugin formats. But I think we can probably agree that Steinberg and Apple are not likely to 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 come onto this. Uh, what, what do you guys both think about that? Yeah, maybe not. Although you know, mentioning Steinberg, Steinberg hasn't really gotten a lot of goodwill from how they've handled VST. Uh, right now, they're really pushing VST3 hard, and the biggest way that they've done that is actually deprecating VST2. Mm. So you cannot use VST2 plugins if you install um, Cubase on a, on a new Mac. That's right. It's just not possible. Mm. And there are a lot of developers that have bemoaned this fact. Um, you can't even get a VST2 license as a developer anymore. If you're a user, you cannot install the VST2 plugins that you might prefer to use. I mean, for me, there are actually a couple of places where I prefer using the VST2 plugin because of what I've observed in terms of performance. So, yeah, that stuff like that definitely annoys me. Um, so I'm not too surprised to see Steinberg not on this list and... But but whatever, maybe they'll get dragged uh, kicking and screaming along with guys like Avid. And like you mentioned, I'm really interested in Epic Games being on here yeah. because, yeah, you know, you know, so many people talk about, hey, why can't I use this plugin in my game? You know, I, I, I've got this thing that works, blah, blah, blah. Um, you could, we could theoretically use it real time, but 
know, if you wanted to do something like a VST, if you were doing a game with Unreal, Epic needs to become a Steinberg VST license holder, and then the developer needs to be a Steinberg VST license holder and, and all that. And there's really no facility for that. Uh, there's no business facility for that. So uh, something like this might actually be really cool. And that combined with the potential to make these clap plugins out of these other popular audio frameworks that are out there, like Juice. Right. Uh, right now, there's unofficial support for Juice and making clap plugins. It's not quite there. It's not 100% uh, feature complete, but there is unofficial support. And people have done things like uh, Dexed, uh, the DX7 uh, synth, open source synth that's there, um, that's made in Juice. And you can actually build a clap plugin based on that. And that seems to mostly work. So there's a lot of cool stuff in the future when it comes to, oh, let me make a clap plugin and let me put that in my game. That would be really fun. Yeah, I think that the um, any attempt to make some kind of standard like this ultimately is beneficial. However, the... Um, the classic uh, XKCD comic comes to mind. You know the one where it's just like this: there's, there's 14 competing standards. This is ridiculous. We need a you know we need a single standard to unite everybody. And then the the, the final frame of the comic says 15 competing standards <laughs> because every company makes a standard for it to be a standard. Uh, it's only when you get mm -hmm. other com competing product products coming along, uh, which is when you you know the whole meaning of a standard just kind of falls by the wayside as different companies' commercial interests come into play. I remember actually about 10 years ago when I was using uh, Mac for all of my um, my uh, audio stuff, um, I uh, got into a situation where when I, the company that I was working at, they had PCs and at home I had um, I was using Macs. And that was a great situation where it was fantastic being able to actually then I was using Renoise to load the VST version of the Yuhi plugins because then I could just take that single Renoise project file and just load it in Windows Renoise and it would all just work fine instead of having, you know, a problem with not being able to run AUs on Windows. But yeah, I think um, Epic Games, it would be really amazing if Audio Kinetic and uh, Firelight Technologies of FMOD fame uh, so Wise and FMOD, if they could also get on board with this together with Epic, and then, you know, probably at that point, Unity might uh, um, follow along suit as well. That that would be really interesting, I think. It's worth noting that the um, the copy says that, you know, Avid, um, ImageLine, et cetera, they're interested. They've expressed interest. So there's no apparent commitment to standing behind this format. And I suspect these companies are taking a wait-and-see approach. Yeah. Mm. I should I should point out one one feature here that I find really compelling, and this is a little bit of extrapolation uh, on my part from what I've read so far, is the potential for integrating uh, plugin presets with your DAW automatically. And this has been a sore point in my mind for many years, where in order to have a um, have presets of a plugin directly accessible uh, from your DAW, at least in Logic, you have to manually save each preset. You have to go in your plugin, load a preset, save something, whether that's an AU preset or a, a channel strip or a patch in Logic. And I'm sure the other DAWs have their own equivalents. And there's no way to just 
mind read a plugin and say, ah, yes, here are all this plugin's presets. Why don't you browse them through the comfort of your DAW browser? And mm. there's no way to do that. I don't think it's technically possible. The, uh, the exception mm -hmm. being um, Logic's own proprietary non-audio unit sampler does have that mind meld where you can automatically access all its settings right from Logic's interface, but that's because it's proprietary. So if Clap offers a mechanism by which any plugin can kind of beam its contents down to the DAW and the DAW can, from its own interface, interact with them in some way, I would be very excited. All that said, um, I'm a little bit pessimistic about this effort. Not to the point where I'd call myself gloom-mongering, but I'm a little bit on the pessimistic side because history suggests that if a standard arises with some truly compelling features, Apple is much more likely to imitate those features and incorporate them into the AU format than it is to support another format. And that's certainly true with plugins because I believe uh, in Logic, you can only use AU. You can't use VST, even though that was the first and is, I think, the most common of these formats. Uh, if you want to really do that, you have to find like a meta plugin that will, you have to basically instantiate a VST host as an AU plugin in Logic. So if we think of what mm -hmm. Logic, what, what Apple did with um, Ableton's feature set, where they effectively cloned a lot of Ableton and just built it into Logic, um, it suggests that Apple is more likely to do the same sort of thing and just cherry pick the features uh, from Clap that it finds compelling and say, here's uh, AU version three, enjoy. I, I suspect Steinberg will have a similar attitude. That might in fact be the case, but there are going to be some things that we know that guys like Apple and Steinberg cannot clone. Like there's no way they're going to clone an MIT license for, you know, making AUV3 open source. That, that's not going to happen. Maybe those things will be enough to get some momentum going with developers. Um, and yeah, I agree. That list of people that are interested in looking at this plugin, it's, it's really just that. They're interested. We'll see what happens. Um, Obviously, I'm excited because I can't wait to see how Epic extends even further the audio capability of Unreal, which they've been doing so much cool stuff over the years. Uh, feels like it wasn't that long ago, but uh, since those first Unreal 5 audio demos a few years ago, when they were showing how much you can do treating this as uh, an environment for custom real-time synthesis, and let's let's do really fun and clever things with synthesis, with environmental sound, all sorts of stuff within Unreal. That's got me kind of excited. Uh, you see Epic on this list. You don't see Audio Kinetic and Firelight. Audio Kinetic and Firelight do have their own version of plugins that you can do. Then they're kind of tied into the marketplace of plugins for their respective middleware tools. So I can buy an engine plugin for Wise that I can license for use in my in my game. And those licensing terms will be part of the overall licensing terms that I have with Audio Kinetic. Um, so this type of thing might actually be at odds with that. But, okay, they don't necessarily need to care about this. But if Epic is on board with this and they're really trying to push just what you can do with pure Unreal for audio, 
uh, maybe that might make the Firelight and Audio Kinetic guys a little bit scared and might have to do some action to push even harder to make even more cool stuff. So I think that this is these are some pretty exciting times. Um, I have a question for you both. Did we actually need this? I, when I first, um, you know, I'm always eager to see what uh, Yuhi's getting up to. And um, Bibwig is a DAW that I've um, demoed multiple times. I've come dangerously close to buying multiple times, never actually taking the plunge because at the end of it all, I just sort of realized, well, you know, th these are some really interesting features, uh, but um, is it going to help me write better music? Well, no, arguably not for the amount of money that I have to pay for it. Um, so I'm always keeping tabs. It's always interesting to follow Bitwig though, because you know they're, they're trying to do some pretty interesting things with the, the whole paradigm of a digital audio workstation. And when this announcement came, it really sort of came out of uh, out of left field. Is that the expression? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. That's a baseball term, is it? Isn't it baseball? Well done. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> feel free. <laughs> Thank to, you. Feel free to use cricket analogies or whatever your people do. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, came out of a river in the mouth of a crocodile. That's uh, that's that's uh, how it is in Australia, isn't it? Um, uh, hold on, while I just take a take a swig of my Foster's beer here. Uh, and of course, nobody in Australia actually drinks Foster's, which is why we have so much of it left over to export to the rest of you guys. Anyway, um, I digress. Uh, I have totally lost my train of thought now. No, I haven't. Um, so yeah, it really. <laughs> It really was a surprising release. And, and of course, the first thing I thought, like most people probably thought, is like, great, uh, I guess. Uh, did did we really need this? Like, is you're reading through that list of, you know, benefits, uh, polyphonic uh, modulation, like per note modulation. That personally, for me, that's not something very appealing because I you do that all the time in a, in a tracker. Um, and we've been doing that in trackers for 30 years now. Um, but you know, great, nice. I can do it with a synth now. That's cool. Uh, yep. Fast loading, being able to like tag my plugins. Great. I can like, I'm sort of doing that anyway, because most DAWs offer like some kind of folder system for storing your plugins. So you can just sort of do compressors and there you go. There's your compressors, but now that's metadata. So that's cool. Multi-core processing. Yep. But I guess most of the plugins that I use, which are you know, coincidentally, the plugins, uh, the plugin instruments are mostly Yuhi anyway, which all offer multi-core processing anyway. So, yeah, okay. Did did we really need this? I guess. But what what do you both think? Do you do you think this is something that we needed? Mm. Well, as I said, the the metadata issue strikes me as having a lot of potential because we desperately need some kind of universal preset tagging system. Um, maybe that other DAWs have this, but Logic is maybe Logic is the one that doesn't. But there's still no way for me to arbitrarily tag presets across different plugins, unless you know, unless a, a plugin is like OmniSphere and it has its own internal tagging system. Uh, and it's ridiculous considering that there is tagging built into the Mac operating system. It just hasn't reverse percolated back up to Logic. So if a plugin format offers that natively and encourages that uh, and perhaps encourages that to be built into DAWs as a, as a browsing element to be able to type, you know, strings as a tag and see all your strings across different sam sample manufacturers, I would be aboard with that. Although again, my prediction is that Apple would then just clone that functionality into AU version N. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely in agreement with you there. That's one thing that I think um, anybody who's used plugins, of which of course you know, probably pretty much everybody listening to this uh, has and does. It's one thing that you notice pretty immediately when you get into music or audio production. It's like, wow, presets work just differently everywhere. <laughs> like the DAW handles it differently. <laughs> Every plugin has its own, you know, browser with its own specific browser functionality. Sometimes there's no browser and it opens up like a, a file requester and you have to find your presets manually on your local drive or, you know, <laughs> and it, as you said, it, it would be fantastic if you didn't have to think about that and you just load up your plugin and you can go to the same, I guess, DAW interface to access the presets available for that plugin, uh, which would then open up that possibility for, like you said, Mike, you could just go to your browser and type in a tag name and then have all of these presets come up across different plugins. I mean, that's that sounds fantastic. And right now, it's it's all just a bit kind of messy, isn't it? Everyone's doing it a little bit differently. Yeah, there there are many inter internal um, tagging and browsing and organization systems. Uh, Alchemy and Logic has a fairly extensive system for doing that, and uh, I think that the Native Instruments core system I think has at least rating systems. But there's no lingua franca, and it's it's a huge obstacle for me personally because the way I think of plugin presets. So um, I'm I guess this topic is broader than just this proprietary uh sorry this this proposed plugin format but it would definitely get my enthusiastic um well i guess it would just get my enthusiasm if they were to add that feature and that could be something that would would be reflected in future DAW interfaces what do you think vince do you think that uh this clap format uh in light of everything we've talked about do you think this is something that we needed i'm i'm interested in it i'm excited even but uh i guess i didn't need it uh, i mean i'm looking at it and i'm thinking uh i can imagine maybe some future version of me doing something really cool with some new future midi 2.0 polyphonic expression controller hooked into um a daw that is um, that is all clap enabled and has plugins that are connected really nicely with what I'm doing with my hardware. And I can imagine that being really cool. Do I need it? No. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm still thinking about all this old stuff that I rely on that are my bread and butter. I'm still using plugins that were at their peak. 12 years ago, and I'm dreading having to drop them when I move on to a MacBook in hopefully just a couple months. Uh, but yeah, did I do I really need it? No, but I am excited. I really do think that there are some fun things that are on the horizon that could result from whatever momentum this has, not just in and of itself as a standard for developers, but how it might push other people, how it might have a, an interesting interaction, especially with interactive stuff, especially with games, with epic Unreal games, uh, things that you can do in audio with Unreal that are right now totally close off to working with things like VSTs and AUs just by virtue of um, the governance of the plugins. Plugin governance, I think that's probably um, like, did we need this? Well, 
we as users? No, probably not. But do the developers of plugins need this? Yes. You know, I think the um, having Steinberg basically holding on to the 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 kill switch <laughs> essentially for your entire product base and source of revenue from the point of view of a plugin developer like that is a massive massive risk you know if you if you're going to start a business in plugin development and you you need to just basically accept that apple and steinberg can just switch you off um that that is a risk and i think that the presence of of formats like this um yeah obviously if it's achieved a certain amount of ubiquity first uh, it mitigates that risk i think um Avid being on this list is a really curious one. That one doesn't really make sense to me, seeing as with Pro Tools, you've, they've got their own proprietary format. Uh, that's that's very interesting. I, I'm not really that's a curious curious one to see on this list. Maybe it's the sign of some future changes coming in Avid strategy. Of course, as you both pointed out, this list really is only just companies that have expressed their interest. Basically, it, it says on the the website that these companies are already evaluating clap so maybe ever just said yes we're thinking about it and in a few weeks they're going to say no we're not going to do it because we already have our own format um but yeah i mean it's uh i assume that they would have contacted you know companies like ableton apple and steinberg as well uh and the fact that those companies are not evaluating clap at the moment and avid is uh tells you something very interesting about potentially uh, what might be happening internally at Avid? Well, I think it's a fair assessment of all three of our responses that our hearts are open to the possibilities. Yes. yes. I'm a bit biased because I'm a bit of a shameless fanboy of pretty much everything that he does. Uh, so I, I feel obliged to really, really uh, um, be excited about Clap. I'm not that excited just because, like, yeah, as we asking that question just a moment, do, did we need this? Did I need this? No. I didn't need it because I do polyphonic modulation all the time in Renoise and it's, you know, it's not, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I guess uh, exciting times. Let's see what happens. And of course, you know, we wish the best of success to anybody trying to do something bold and kind of a little bit even disruptive like this. Disruptive? I, I suppose it's disruptive, isn't it? If it takes off, it could be. Yeah, yeah. I guess so. Now we're at an awkward point, aren't we? Because we're... <laughs> we're Hold on, no. We, we could just say, speaking of disruptive... Oh, okay. There we go. Very good. <laughs> I was really confused a little while back when you, Mike, were talking about this thing called uh, the MLC, the Mechanical Licensing Collective, because I had already ingrained into my mind all the things that you have to do with... Um, setting up music and publishing and that included things like oh yes harry fox agency and whatnot but then you introduced to me this new thing the mechanical licensing collective and it seems like they're just doing all sorts of cool stuff now i had actually just set up an account there uh, a month ago and i can search for my name and i can see various works but they had recently actually put out some new information uh, regarding works and artists. Isn't that right, Mike? That is the case. And this is something I think is worth pointing out to the composer members of our listenership, uh, in particular those based in the United States. It's a little less useful news to those outside of the U.S., so Alex, you can go and play with the compressor plugin for a few minutes if you're bored. But um, <laughs> here, here's the upshot. I'm going to try to compress a vast subject into a short little 
little nugget of information that interested listeners can run with and then use to learn more. Um, so th- what's not obvious to everybody is that when your music is streamed, like if you have, let's say you have a soundtrack for a game score you made, and it's out there on Spotify and Apple Music and Pandora and all those other places. So you're probably aware that streaming of your music generates royalties, performance royalties, and you might collect those through ASCAP or BMI uh, or overseas equivalents. But what's a lot less well-known is that thanks to, in the United States, the um, Music Modernization Act of 2018, uh, every stream also generates a mechanical royalty. And it might be the case that these are two monetarily identical amounts. I don't know about that. But every every time your music is streamed, it, it, it creates a performance royalty and a mechanical royalty. And a mechanical royalties are actually the, the descendants of the royalties you'd get when your music was sold in uh, a copy of your music was sold in a physical medium, like a CD or tape, or going back far enough, vinyl or wax or um, scrolls with notation, whatever. Um, with the advent of streaming, the relevant decision makers decided that a stream was going to be this weird hybrid that's both a performance and kind of a mechanical sale, sort of. So your streaming music isn't you as the author, if you are the rights holder to your music that is being streamed, are entitled to both performance royalties through ASCAP and mechanical royalties. And in the past, uh, the organization responsible for collecting mechanical royalties was the Harry Fox Agency. I think most people knew them as where cover bands had to go to get permission and to, to, to pay royalties in order to release an album with a, with a cover song, thanks to what's called the, uh, I think the, the statutory mechanical license. But uh, with the aforementioned 2018 Music Modernization Act, a brand new entity came into existence in the United States that has purview of mechanical royalties or streaming in the U.S. So this is very interesting if you are a composer with music in a streaming format, uh, typically for game composers, that's going to mean an album, um, because you're now entitled to this collection of royalties that you may not have been aware of. And the MLC is an organization whose job it is to basically collect all these royalties from the people who have to pay them, which means Spotify, Apple Music, all the um, the online streaming services, and then try to get it to the people who created the music um, the or the rights holders, the publishers and the composers. So in practical terms, what this means is you as a composer uh, should go to themlc.com, that's just the with MLC after it, create a free account, and then start searching their public database for uses of your music that are already out there, which you can think of as money with your name on it. Uh, create an account, register all the pieces of your, all, all your pieces of music that are streaming in some way, and then you play a little match game where you say, Oh, I found an instance of Final Confrontation ML6, um, and I know that's from my my soundtrack album for this game score, and I've registered that same piece of music, and now I'm going to say, that usage out there corresponds to this piece of music in my database, now pay me. And um, MLC will do its best to do all of that. So there's no reason not to do this. Um, 
if you have music that's been streaming, and particularly if it's been streaming for a while. And the reason I say the second half of that is because MLC basically inherited uh, piles of money from Harry Fox that were supposed to go uh, to the rights holders of music uh, for years, and Harry Fox had no way to associate with those rights holders. So MLC has inherited these piles of millions and millions of dollars and is looking for the people to whom to give it. Yeah, it's a, it's, this is the time to do that. Go create your free MLC account, register your catalog, and then try to look for uses of your music, and hopefully money will result. Uh, standard disclaimers apply. The actual royalty rates for mechanicals due from streaming are kind of equivalent to the, the performance royalty equivalent. So if you're getting a trickle of fragments of pennies from ASCAP, probably you'll get fragments of pennies from MLC. But it's still free money, and there is something nice knowing that the passage of time will result in money coming your way for work you've already done. So check it out. Um, set yourself up. There's really no reason not to. And um, again, it's it's free for you, uh, the the composer, the monies, you know, the the fees, the the royalties. Everything else is paid by other people. You are strictly the beneficiary, and the only cost is a little bit of digital paperwork. Yeah, I went through this process a little more than a month ago, actually, and I only recently finished it up because it did take a little bit of time between me actually putting my name in as uh, as a member of as an MLC member and them actually approving me. Uh, I had to do a, a little bit of yeah digital work there but yeah otherwise no fees not really particularly hard to do but it did take a few steps with a few days or what could have been a few days between if i didn't let it lapse into a few weeks but um yeah uh, this thing seems kind of cool there were some works that i actually did not see when i initially searched for my name a few months ago and now I'm actually seeing those works when I go through their public search. So that's cool. It seems like things are changing, things are moving, and uh, we might have some access to all these dollars that these guys are collecting now. Or fragments of pennies, as the case may be. But yeah, uh, in a similar spirit, and as a sort of sidecar public service announcement, I also want to tell our listeners, uh, also set up a sound exchange account because... Um, you know, every piece of music that's been recorded has two copyrights associated with it, one for the composition and one for the performance. And if you own the masters of your music recordings, um, or you are the performer, quote-unquote, which might just mean, you know, if it's, a, if it's a digital production where you did everything at your DAW, then you are by default the performer, you're entitled to yet another stream of royalties. Uh, and to my knowledge, this comes specifically from... Um, non-interactive online radio like Pandora. I think it's very specific. I, I, it might have changed. The, the landscape's mm -hmm. changing. But this is a similar organization where it doesn't cost anything to join. Um, and if you set everything up, you should be, you, you maybe do money. It's a little different because it's not for the rights holder of the music. It's for the master owner of the recording and the artist. So if you did a work for hire for a game and the game owns the soundtrack, chances are well, actually, I'll take that back. You still may be the performer on that music if if you created it all yourself. So you might find that the game company registered the music with SoundExchange as the 
the master owner, but you can say, hey, I'm the performer on all of these. I get a share of that. And um, yeah, there's there's nothing they could do to stop you. So it's a very exciting and complicated time. There's a lot of things to keep track of. Uh, for our listeners, I'd say start getting a database together of all your cues, uh, your your album tracks, your game tracks, get it all organized, um, you know, enter all the, the the work codes, all the information, and just kind of go down it and say, where has this been registered? Where could it be registered? Is there some revenue potential? And um, who knows, you know, eventually the accumulation of these micro royalties might um, might be significant. And, and certainly if you've got a big hit, if you've got a, a, a popular album or popular music that's streaming, you know, do not hesitate because you could be one of the people who really benefits from these services. Definitely. It's not too hard to do either MLC or sound exchange registration. So do it. Um, no, I'm not going to do the Schwarzenegger. <laughs> that's okay. Hey, Alex, are you still alive there? Yeah, I was actually just going to mention there that uh, for the benefit of anybody who's listening from Sweden, the Swedish equivalent of this is called STIM, S-T-I-M. Uh, so if you go to S-T-I-M.S-E, uh, that is the place to go for information about how to sign up for what I believe is the, the equivalent in Sweden for for this. Like just while you were discussing MLC, MLC was it? Um, yeah. <laughs> I was just having a look and it looks like in Europe, it's a bit more fragmented, sadly, and uh, every country or every region has its own association that handles this kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, for the benefit of any of uh, our listeners who are in Sweden, I believe that STIM is the Swedish equivalent. It's interesting to speculate what would happen if, let's say that all governments dissolved and they created a big world government, um, and then they had to design copyright and statutory royalties and royalty collection mechanism all over from scratch as opposed to constantly layering on new interpretations and rules uh, of laws and principles that were really set up with much older paradigms of music consumption. I wonder what it would look like. You know, if they just started from scratch, would we still have performance royalties? Um, would would performance royalties and mechanical royalties be different? It's it's fun to think about. Um, we, we may be the beneficiary of some of these uh, arguably antiquated mechanisms because they they're in place and they may result in royalties that none of us would have the gumption to negotiate today. But it is it is curious to think about sometimes. And we would all be using clap format, wouldn't we? <laughs> it would be the law, the, the, the global law. By the way, uh, if you are listening to this from a country other than Sweden or the United States, Wikipedia, I've just found it, has a really good list. If, uh, the, list the name of the list is List of Copyright Collection Societies. Uh, and it's got a, I don't know how comprehensive it is, but there's a lot of countries on here, uh, as well as some global societies. Um, and this one, yes, it has the MLC and it also has uh, STEM on it as well. So I, I assume it's fairly comprehensive. Um, but if you're curious, um, yeah, Wikipedia has a very useful list here that you can go to to try and find your country and see, uh, you know, which association you should be talking to for this kind of thing. Mm, very cool. Okay. Well, we've been going at this for just about an hour now, so we should probably go into some conspicuous consumption. Mike, have you been doing anything cool when it comes to interactive media or linear media consumption lately? Well, I'll probably be playing Elden Ring for another five years, judging by my progress <laughs> so far. 
Um, but uh, in terms of linear media, I have been watching the new uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi series, uh, predictably on Disney. And while I think the series has very few virtues to recommend it to anyone, uh, one of those virtues is the score. Um, John Williams somewhat famously wrote the main theme for uh, Obi-Wan, but I'm actually much more impressed by the underscore written by Natalie Holt, who also did the music to Loki. And I think Natalie, like a handful of composers, has been handed this impossible task of taking a musical legacy, which for many people is synonymous with film music, you know, the, the Star Wars music written by John Williams, and finding a way to stay true to it while also allowing it to evolve and modernize. And I think of the many people who have tried to carry the torch, she has done the best job of it. I think that her score is very sensitive, it has a great sense of drama to it, and it's frankly adding a lot of interest and emotion that isn't really there in the show. Uh, it's very um, eloquently orchestrated, meaning it's written with the orchestra in mind. It feels very natural and organic, which was always a hallmark of William's scoring. But it incorporates synths, it incorporates uh, modern percussion and, and grooves, and it, it really feels like a nice and elegant hybrid of the old and the new. So it's um, even if you're a little iffy on the series as I am, I think the score itself is worth paying attention to. That's cool. I have Disney Plus. I've been meaning to check it out, especially since the last episode was just made available so I can go ahead and binge it. So I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you. Happy to help. How about uh, Vince, your own conspicuous consumption? Let's see. I actually have been going down the anime rabbit hole. So there's a bunch of anime that are coming out this particular year. Um, you can tell how much of a dork I am because I do subscribe to Crunchyroll and I do uh, try to keep up with some of these series that have been uh, playing over the years. So there's one called Kaguya-sama Love is War, which is your typical sort of high school romance drama with... Uh, with hijinks and, and whatnot. I really like that series. And musically, it's pretty typical. But the thing that I like the most about it when it comes to the music is that it has so many musical uh, illusions that go along with the animation that they do. So, for example, in this last episode, they did a riff on the music video for AHA's Take On Me, huh. which famously features the guy from the comic strip bringing a person into his world and, and the change in the animation. And you would hear these things that are sound-alikes based on Take On Me. And it's like, that's really funny. Uh, it, I think it's always really cool when they do these things that are ostensibly supposed to call back to those pieces of music or songs um, and just how they decide to do it. And all these callbacks that they do in this series are really fantastic, whether it be something like uh, Take On Me or something like uh, the James Bond theme or uh, this thing that is supposed to be uh, specifically Starship Troopers, uh, the, the movie that from 20-some years back. You know, they, they do all these illusions, and the animation handles it extremely well, but also the music does a really bang-up job of 
of keeping up with how the animation does it. So I think that one's really cool. Alex, have you been checking out anything lately? Yeah, actually, um, on the topic of playing with nostalgia, uh, I went to see Top Gun, <laughs> Top Gun Maverick, or Top Gun 2, or whatever it's called. Good value. <laughs> like like pretty much all Tom Cruise movies, yeah, good value. Uh, you know what you're getting. Uh, the uh, Well, I mean, I guess the, the sort of everything around the aviation – was yeah yeah all right yep um <laughs> this combination of tom cruise and who's the director it is uh, joseph kaczynski is that his name i believe joseph kaczynski does that sound right um i can hear mike furiously googling right now i mean i just keep on remembering like you know it was tony scott back in the day but right um, it was think, joseph but, kaczynski yeah so this is the second time. the The other movie that um, I really liked, with Joseph, uh, directed by Joseph Kaczynski and starring Tom Cruise, was Oblivion, and um, uh, great soundtrack. Oh, I forgot about that. That was I. I watched that in theaters ten years ago, and I thought that was actually a really fun movie. Yeah, the thing is that like the combination of those two, it's always like nine out of ten. Like it's good. It's <laughs> very good. You know, it's it ticks all the boxes. It's what you want in a Tom Cruise movie. It's what you want out of, you know, whatever the, the context is. It's not like, you know, at least for me, it's not um, uh, Denny Villeneuve level, like Blade Runner 2049, June sort of mind-blowing stuff. Uh, but it's just very good. And that's how I felt about this Top Gun movie. More relevant to us, the sound design, great. The music, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was I was really I think I remember before I went to see the movie I was writing to you both um it, it, saying Harold Faltermeyer? Yeah, that's right, saying like they better get the start right because if it if it doesn't, you know, if if it doesn't do justice to the original with that classic uh, you know, the, the that's right, the the DX7 bell patch and the um uh the TR808. Yes, TR808 before it meant, you know, just the kick drum, it's actually a drum machine with other parts to it. Uh, when they had the, the 808 <laughs> kit there playing with the DX7 and that, that classic intro as it works on the aircraft carrier launch into um, Kenny Loggins' uh, Danger Zone. Um, I was really curious, like, how are they going to start it? How are they going to... Like, they know that 90% of the people watching are going to want that. So what are they going to do? Well, they just did exactly that. <laughs> it's like, yep, exactly the same music, Straight into to Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins, exactly the same carrier launch sequence, except that this time it's F-18s instead of F-14s. So it's like, yeah, all right. I mean, why reinvent the wheel? They know that's what we're expecting, so just give us directly that. You know, can't complain. Very good. And then the rest of the movie was kind of the same as well. You know, beach volleyball, Kawasaki motorcycles, uh, classic port. Wait, wait, did they really do the beach volleyball scene again? Oh, yeah, they did. An, it's actually a, a kind of a comparable version. Yeah, yeah. It's actually wow. it's not volleyball, but we won't spoil it for you. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. But yeah, everything else was kind of like yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, you know, ticks all the boxes. However, the um, the aviation, yes, like that's really really amazing. Like the the yeah, when Tom Cruise said that you've not ever seen like dog fighting in cinema on this level uh he's right so yeah highly recommended um i give it uh i don't know 
7.9 out of 10. <laughs> you really, okay. really feel the difference between practical effects and actors in actual airplanes um, in comparison to you know, like an MCU, everything is digital. There's right. just a weight and a heft to the physics. And when we believe in the world of a movie, we believe in the stakes. We can feel that the characters are in danger and we, we empathize with them better. And the, the physical staging of action scenes is such an important part of that. So I think that the, all the artistic decisions for that movie were, were spot on. Yeah, I totally agree. Like you definitely, one of the hardest things to do with dogfighting in, uh, in movies is because is, everything's moving so quickly is to make it very, very clear like what plane is where facing what direction doing what. Uh, and this movie makes that really, really clear. But like you said, Mike, you, you really, it's very visceral. Like you really kind of feel it <laughs> just looking at it. Um, and I guess like Tom Cruise has been saying in all the marketing stuff, you know, uh, you have to feel it because you see these actors, I mean, their faces are literally contorting from the G-force, <laughs> you know. I mean, you can't fake that with graphics. Well, you could, but it would look really, really scary. Um, so, yeah, anyway, go see it. Very impressive. That's really cool. Also, I'm going down this rabbit hole with uh, Joseph Kosinski, and there is a little bit of a game connection there, too, because he directed the Gears of War Mad World trailer. Mm. Um, which was a really effective trailer when it came out. You know, it, uh, Gears of War was, of course, that big third-person cover shooter. It really sort of defined the cover shooter, and it came out with this trailer that was very serious and dramatic um, and not typically what you would see uh, to accompany something like a, a third-person action shooting game on a on a modern game console. So that's cool. I was, I was really surprised to see that. I'll have to go and look at that. Um, actually, you, that's something we should save uh, for another episode because game trailers and music for game trailers, I don't believe we've ever, ever talked about that in our 200 plus episodes. I don't think we've ever touched on mm. like music for game trailers. And that is a huge, huge part of our industry. So let's, uh, let's definitely save that one for next time. Sure. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. I like it. But um, until then, uh, this was episode 227 of the Game Audio Hour. If you liked what you heard here, well, feel free to support us by subscribing to us at your podcast purveyor of choice, Apple, Google, Spotify, whatever, and leave us a review to keep us in the forefront of the algorithm. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Game Audio Hour, where we will also post notices about future episodes as well as try to support some other fun and positive voices out there in the Twitterverse. And of course, the easy way to do all of this without having to remember any of that is to just go to GameAudioHour.com. So go ahead and do that while we fade out. Bye. Bye.